Good morning. Good to see you. And um, we have, uh, as you know, we've added the Wednesday night uh, group as well, which has doubled our numbers for men studying God's Word. And last night there were even more people. They're sitting around on the floors and all against the walls in a hot room. And it's a really exciting time to be alive in what God is doing in this city and this church, and not just this church. We had lots of visitors from other churches too, and we welcome you who are visiting from other churches. We're studying through the book of Genesis, and I listened to Barton's lesson last week, and I'm, I'm telling you, uh, it's one of the best I've ever heard on, on uh, Genesis 1 and on anything. I mean, uh, he, he, is, uh, he is not only gifted, but what you heard was he's a gifted speaker. Well, what you heard was as good as, of any, as any uh, seminary lecture I've ever heard on, on, um, on uh, creation, all the issues touching creation, creationism. And so if you haven't heard that, uh, all these talks are on uh, a website or on the Second Prez app. And uh, please listen to that uh, lesson, that lecture by Barton Kimbrough. We pick up in verse 4 of chapter 2 where he left off. We'll go to the end of the chapter, and it is a long chapter, and there's lots of things here. I mean, after all, everything in the world is beginning here, and uh, we don't have uh, all the time to cover everything, but I'm, I hope I can give uh, enough of a theological construct for the whole of this chapter that <clears throat> it'll provide you the framework for studying it for the rest of your lifetime. I want to point out one thing before we read the text, and you'll find it in the very first phrase of verse 4. These are the generations. See that word, generations? You might have it translated some other way in another, uh, another version. But if you look over chapter 5, verse 1, you see the same word. This is the book of the generations of Adam. And then if you will look through Genesis, or as you study Genesis, you'll notice it's repeated eight more times. There are ten of these records of generations, or in Hebrew called toledoth, T-O-L-E-D-O-T, toledoth. There are ten toledoths in the book of Genesis, and they form a kind of ribcage for the whole of the book. They are the, they are the, they are the motifs that hold the book together. This is the record of the beginnings. This is the record of the generations. And we're told a lot about, I won't spoil the surprise, we're told, but we're told a lot about what is happening in Genesis and what happens with the characters by these, by these Toledos. We're also told a lot about the particular character if one is not mentioned. See, it's a form of honoring as well. So if someone says, these are the records of Adam, who is implied to be honored. Here is the record of Abraham. Here is the record of Jacob. But I skipped somebody, Isaac. There's not one for Isaac. There's a reason for that. Well, that's for a different discussion. But for today, here is the record. Here is the, here is the family tree, you might say, of the heavens and the earth. It's a very tender image as you think about it. This is, not, this is not academic. This is not mechanical. This is God as the Father saying, 
here's the way I gave birth to, here's the way I crafted the heavens and the earth. I'm going to give you its history, and I'm very proud to do it. And by saying this is the generations of the earth, he's saying this is to be the earth. The cosmos is to be honored because this is my gift to you. All right, so with a very worshipful and grateful and humble attitude for God having given us life and this place in which we have life, we begin reading in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, and the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. (laughs) The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now you'll talk about that in chapter 3. We won't get to that today. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedillium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around to the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man... And put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word, your word which tells us everything we need for life and godliness, and what, there are few things we could need more for life and godliness than to know where we came from, 
and to know that you, the good one, created all things and created all things good. And whatever is not good and whatever is broken today is not because of your original making it that way. It is because by sin we have corrupted your creation and yet not everything is as broken as it possibly could be. You have left order here. You have left beauty. You've left pleasure. The real problem is that there is pleasure. How could there be pleasure? How could there be beauty and and order given what we have done to you and to your world the only explanation is your grace we thank you for incarnating that grace in Jesus Christ for bringing man and woman into this world in order to produce a line through which the Messiah would come and I pray O oh Lord God that um, no matter what else is learned today or or what is not addressed, that someone might wish were addressed, no matter what is covered or what is not covered, we pray that this certainly would be true, that everyone here would know that there is reconciliation with God the Father through Jesus Christ alone. And not one person in this room or within the sound of my voice would, would finish today, finish this day without giving his heart to Jesus Christ. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus, and for His sake, and God's men said together, Amen. <clears throat> One of my great heroes is John Newton, probably is for you too, the author of Amazing Grace, former slave trader. God got hold of him, saved him, set him free eventually from trading slaves, and <clears throat> became a great hymn writer, became a great pastor became a pastor to pastors. And so uh, a few years ago, I discovered a book that, he, that uh, someone had put together from his letters written to a, a young pastor named John Ryland, Jr. Now, as you might imagine, John Ryland, Jr. had a father named John Ryland, Sr. John Ryland, Sr. was the well-known one, <clears throat> but apparently he was an absentee, if not a harsh father, and John Ryland, Jr. found a father figure in John Newton, so he would pour out his heart to John Newton. He became a pastor himself. And uh, he was a worrier. Uh, he was an anxious person. And uh, <clears throat> when he'd have a problem in his, in his congregation, he would write uh, John Newton. When he would be sad, when he'd be worried, he'd write John Newton. And one occasion he wrote to John Newton, and he said, uh, the whole earth is sinking, sinking like a ship, and Christ cares not. Instead of John Newton writing back, how can, you be a how can you be a pastor and have such little faith? John Newton very tenderly would, would reason with him from Scripture and from providence. Christ wasn't sinking with the ship, and God also was still in control, and the earth and history uh, was not sinking without his superintendence. He told him a story on one occasion when he wrote with that worry. He, John Newton replied <clears throat> with a story from a tradition in Venice uh, that was established by an ancient pope and the, and the idea that somehow Venice and the Adriatic Sea were married together and the pope had decreed that, that once a year the, 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 the pilot of the, of the royal yacht was to, to, to take a trip with the, with the mayor, the governor, the 
you know, the potentate of the city of Venice, supposed to, to, to sail out to, to the edge of the, of the Adriatic Sea where it interacted with the, with the local uh, uh, waters around Venice. And he was to, to conduct a ceremony to, to celebrate this union of the two. And uh, he had to take a vow before he set sail. And the vow was that in defiance of wind and weather, he would safely bring back the officials to shore. He would raise his hand and he would swear to it. Defiance of wind and weather, I will bring them back safely to shore. And Newton said, how foolish is that? How foolish is it that that man can infallibly promise that in defiance of wind and weather, I will bring you back to shore. If the wind and weather decide he's not coming back to shore, he's not coming back to shore. It doesn't matter how good a sailor he is. And then Newton concluded his letter this way. We have, on the contrary, young John Ryland Jr., we have an infallible pilot. And the power and wisdom and honor of God are embarked with us. Duty is our part. The care is his. That's the, that's the point of Genesis chapter 2. We have duties that God has given to us. But care is his. Care is not our part. Worry is not our part. Swearing in defiance of wind and weather that we will take care of all things is not our part. Care superintendence, the sovereign guidance of the history of the world, our redemption, our preservation into all of eternity. That is all in the hands of God who alone has the power to fulfill that promise. After all, He made everything, including history. I want to show you just three points in the passage. <clears throat> God supplies the growth, I said, maybe I should just say God supplies for everything in the earth. And then God supplies the gardener. That's you and me, ultimately. And then God supplants all other gods. Verses 4 and following is the, <clears throat> verses 4 to 14 is the first point. God supplies the growth. I say growth because here's the problem that we, we face in the in, the, in the, uh, the first verse, or I should say the first need that we encounter in creation uh, is in verse 5. There was no bush of the field. In Hebrew, siah hasidah. There was no wild plant. There was no kudzu, we might say in the southern translation. There was nothing growing by happenstance. There was nothing growing. Why? Because uh, the Lord had not caused it to rain, verse 5. There was no wild plant because the Lord had not caused it to rain. There's the problem. There's the solution. The only reason, we could work the other way, the only reason there became a wild bush the only reason there became a kudzu, though don't think God, ill of God for that, but the only reason there became the wild bush is because God caused it to rain. 
The only reason, in other words, there is anything in creation is God caused it. God not only caused the formation of the original stuff of creation, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, He spoke and the stuff, the basic stuff was put together, but then the growth of the stuff, the, the emergence of flora and fauna is only explained by God continuing to unpack the potential of the creation. And the only reason the creation continues, the only reason growth of any kind continues, is that God provides it. Now, people used to mock, I'm saying a couple centuries ago, the, 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 the scientists used to mock Christianity as, as a religion that invented the God of the gaps, that there were gaps in our understanding of things. We didn't understand how uh, photosynthesis worked, so we said, well, God just makes plants to, to grow. We didn't understand how condensation uh, and rain and relate, and so they said, well, God just calls it to rain. But as we grew, the Enlightenment people, Enlightenment philosophers said, as we grew in our knowledge and gathered scientific knowledge, we, we, we could erase God out of those gaps. Oh, God doesn't cause that. God, God doesn't cause that. That's photosynthesis. God doesn't cause it to rain. That's the phenomenon of, of, of uh, high-pressure systems and low-pressure systems, the way they interact and so forth. Uh, God, God, God isn't the God of water. We know that that's two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen. That's, that, that, we don't need that God there either. The problem is, what explains how when you put those things together, they produce what happens? You know, one time I was talking to, a, to an OBGYN after we had lost a pregnancy. <clears throat> and I was asking a million questions. You know, how did this happen? What did that happen? And, and she said, okay, here's, here's what happened and here's what didn't happen. And then I, I kept pushing the question. She said, you know, that's as much as I can answer. I've just described to you what happened. But the explanation of what happens in the uterus, only God knows. I was grateful for an honest scientist. I can describe phenomenologically, even scientifically, what happens, but I can't give the explanation for why those scientific principles do what they do. The reason there was no bush of the field is that it had not yet rained. But the explanation for how rain causes a bush of the field to grow, that's God. That had the explanation for how rain works is God. That's the point of this first passage. God caused it to rain. And God provides all of the secondary causes of everything in the universe that produces the results that we experience that result in our lives. Let me show you how it's stated in another place. Turn with me to the middle of your Bible, Psalm 104. Psalm 104. <clears throat> it's a beautiful psalm. It's a long psalm. We're not going to read it all, but just point out <laughs> to you some of the some of the uh, the expressions here in this beautiful psalm. Verse five, Psalm 104. He, God, set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. We'll come back to that in a moment. 
verse 10, you make springs gush forth in the valleys. That's what he did here. Now, we said in chapter 2, the ESV says he caused a mist to arise. Well, this is a mighty mist because it it created four rivers. Uh, That's that's rain in, in, in Alabama. I don't know. Maybe it's a mist in mist in Memphis, but <clears throat> you make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. You hear it? God gives, God makes it to rain. And because he makes it to rain, these are the byproducts of the rain. The birds, the, 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 the animals are, they, they drink. We are sustained. Verse 14, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth. Verse 16, the trees of the Lord are watered abundantly and then the birds build their nests. And so he made, verse 19, he made the moon to mark the season. It's consistent throughout Psalm 104. Every phenomenon that you can observe, every secondary cause that you can identify is marked out in Psalm 104, and God is the explanation for it. And it it should transform the way you look at the world. You know, the psalmist didn't look at the world and say, what an amazing thing that those hot air currents cause the wind to blow and make the trees to move. The psalmist says instead, look at the trees clapping their hands in praise to God. They don't say, isn't it a marvelous thing that because of condensation and the formation of water and, and the, 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 the valleys that uh, catch the rainwater, isn't it amazing that those animals can drink that and they, and, they, and they live? The psalmist says, is it not amazing that God provides water and those animals partake of it and they make their sound? as a praise to God, should transform the way we see the world. This is our Father's world, and He is keeping it. Yes, we can describe it scientifically, but we can't explain it in any other way than theologically. God provides for the world, and the world responds in worship. We're the only ones. We're the only ones of the animal creatures who give credit to anybody else. But why does he do it? He does it ultimately to provide an arena in which he is accomplishing his redemption of the elect. The Bible calls this the covenant of creation. I want you to turn with me to another book, uh, and it's just to the right of Psalms. It's in Jeremiah. Go to the middle of your Bible, that's Psalms. Turn to the right, a couple of books over, that's Jeremiah. And Jeremiah says in chapter 33, verses 19 and following, he says this, the word of the Lord, Jeremiah 33, 19, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant may be broken so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne in my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. Now, what is uh, Jeremiah saying? Except that God made a covenant. A covenant is is a promise. It's a unilateral promise in the Bible. It's God making the promise. God swearing by himself. 
And God says, I am going to cause day and night to proceed without interruption until David, David's greater son finishes his work. That's the point. I'm going to cause the sun to rise and set. I'm going to maintain the gases in the universe. I'm going to maintain the earth in its orbit. I'm going to keep the earth a proper distance from the sun. I'm going to keep the earth alive until my son Jesus Christ has finished redeeming all of his elect. So when you look, when you see a sunrise, when you see a sunset, when you sleep and you awake and you, you, you can breathe and you're, you, can, uh, you can go forward in life, you know, not just, you, you should praise God, not just that you've been kept alive another day, but praise God that He is continuing His work of redemption. God has crafted the whole earth not just to glorify Himself, not just to keep people and animals alive. He has created the whole earth as an arena, as a, as a theater in which He is playing out this divine drama of saving people. And the reason the earth is kept in, in place, the reason that the earth is sustained is because God is saving people. We could look at other places. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 8, verse 22. You're going to look at that eventually. When Noah gets off the ark, you know, Noah's wondering, oh, wait a minute. I'm a little bit nervous here. You've already destroyed the place once. What are you going to do next time? And God says, I'm going to keep it together. He makes a covenant. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, sun and moon, uh, 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 heat and cold and so forth. All that's going to, all those, all those basic physical constants of the universe are going to be kept in place because I have a work of redemption to do. I have the, I'm, in, I'm gathering in my elect. God preserves the world <clears throat> for the sake of redemption. You could find another place in, <clears throat> in Ephesians chapter 3 where he says, God created all things in order that he might reveal the manifold wisdom of His grace. He created the world in order that He might show His grace. The purpose of the world, the purpose of the sustenance of the world is for redemption. I am not a scientist. My science teachers could tell you I am not a scientist. And so I'm not smart enough, finally, to evaluate the current uh, warnings that were being given about global warning or what they're now everyone is calling the existential threat and so forth. All I know experientially is when I was a kid, the scientists were terrifying me with the fact that I was going to be frozen by now and in a few years I'm going to be incinerated. <clears throat> I look at the scientific data and I don't conclude everything that they're concluding, but this is what I can conclude theologically. The earth will be maintained by God until He's finished His work of redemption. Now, does that make us irresponsible environmentalists? Absolutely not. It should make us that much more responsible. But responsible for the sake of promoting human flourishing. Because we understand that the purpose of the creation was... By, for God to produce a place in which human beings who reflect His image 
would flourish and from which in which he could save them. And then he has a plan to recreate the world for an even better place for his people to dwell, a place that has, that has the brokenness and sin that scars this world removed from it. So we become those who care for this world, care for the environment, care for the people in it as a testimony to that even greater beauty that is coming. We don't pillage the world. We don't treat it irresponsibly. We are caretakers of it. But all for the sake of giving testimony to the redemption of Christ. Not as what is most often promoted today, a way of self-salvation. The, the impulse of environmentalism as a worldview is we've got to save ourselves by saving this world. We don't, we're not saving ourselves. We are, safe. we are tending to, stewarding this world for the glory of our God and for the good of fellow image bearers. God supplies the growth. The next point is God supplies the gardener. won't spend as much time here, not because it's less important, but because we tend to know this theology of, of humanity a little better. But there was another problem or another thing missing in the creation that's noted in... Um, in verse 5, there was no bush of the field, there was no siah hasedah, there was no wild bush of the field because the Lord had not caused it to rain. And there was no man to work the ground. There was no man to cultivate and bring forth what Hebrew, in Hebrew is called esev. There is siah hasedah, wild vegetation, and esev hasedah is cultivated vegetation. There was no kudzu, and there were no soybeans. There, there's nothing wild, and there was nothing there that can only come about by cultivation. And there's no cultivation because there was no man to cultivate. And the reason there was, the reason there became wild vegetation is God caused it to rain. The reason there we got soybeans is because God created man to produce cultivated crops, to produce culture. Several things that we observe about the creation of human beings. The first we mentioned we'll come back to is that he formed them to continue his work of unpacking the potential of the creation. Maybe I'll just talk about that right now. He, he, he formed human beings to continue his work of diversifying. You know, God created the stuff. He unpacked it a little bit, and then he put man and woman in the garden. He said, you continue to unpack it. Th those trees over there, why don't you harvest from them violins? There's iron ore there in the ground. Why don't you harvest locomotives from it? There's the, there's the air. Why don't you harvest notes from it and create symphonies? You imitate me. Your, your, your job as an image bearer, bearing my image, is I'm going to shine my image down here and like a mirror, you're going to reflect it out into the world by imitating my cultivation of the creation. I want you to continue to unpack it. 
that has a lot to say about your daily work. Your missional work, your work as an image bearer of God is not merely pleasing to God when you do something that's churchy. Your work is not just spiritual when you lead somebody to Christ or when you sing a hymn or when you, when you uh, clean one of the restrooms of the church. Your work is holy to God when you do what God has given to your hands to do. You do your work as an engineer, as a sanitation worker, as an educator, as a plumber, as a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker. You, you do your work for the glory of God. And as you do your work, as you do your work saying, however menial it might appear to be, you do it saying, this is the work you've given me to do. I want to reflect your image in doing it. I want to, you, you do with it whatever you want. I want you to establish it as eternally significant. Just as Psalm 90 says, establish the work of my hands. <clears throat> I don't know how in the world you're going to take this computer program and establish it as eternally significant. I don't know how you're going to take this paper pushing that I'm doing today and, etern- and establish it as eternally significant. But I'm yielding it up to you as an offering. And I say, you get a name for yourself in this. And that glorifies God. It worships Him. It brings glory and honor to Him. Because He says, that's, what, that's the kind of thing I do. I attend to a million different details every day. And I, am, and I care for people. And, I, and I, I do my best for people. And when you do that, you're like a mirror of me. This should provide... This should provide dignity and purpose and inspiration to even the most menial tasks that you do. Your life is not divided into sacred and secular. That it only matters when you're doing sacred things. It doesn't matter when you're doing secular things. You're just funding your habits with the, the funding of secular. There's no division like that in Scripture. Everything you do for the glory of God as a human being is an act of worship. And he takes and he stores and he establishes it as eternally significant. It'll be among those works that come forth shining as gold because they were done in his name. Another observation I want you to see about about the creation of man as image bearer is he created man and woman in his image. There is no image of God with just male There is no image of God with just female. The image of God is found in the complementarity of male and female. There is no ontological, the philosophers say, that that is the essence of things. There is no ontological greater or lesser between male and female. God did not say that one was created in the image of God until female had been created. And so Adam, when he looks at Eve, or, or when God says, God says there's something else that's not good in my creation, it's that man is alone. Now, it's not just he's feeling sorry for Adam to being, you know, that his only companion is an orangutan or a, or a zebra. He's saying, there's something not good here. My image is not being, my image is not being reflected. So I'm going to make a woman 
suitable to him. Maybe a helper fit for him is not the best, the most helpful translation. Because literally, Hebrew is, I will make a, a face-to-face compliment to Adam. I, he doesn't say, I will make a face-to-face copy of Adam. That would be same gender. I will make a face-to-face compliment to Adam. And Adam, Adam recognizes it. He looks at woman... He looks at Eve and he says, this is bone of my bones. She's she's a human like me. She is an ish. That's Hebrew man. She's an ish. She's like me, but she's gloriously not like me. She's isha. So we fit together, not only personality, but physically And our parts fit together in such a way that we can appear to be one body. And out of that body union, other little bodies can be formed. Other little image bearers. It's an an unspeakably glorious thing. The complementarity of male and female. And God is reflecting what? Not not just His, His glory as a being but the glorious complexity of His being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and this mysterious differentiation and yet oneness that's male and female. Whether or not we are ever married, there is this complementarity in creation, and then it's especially expressed in marriage. That's that's one reason among many we would say same-sex unions not only cannot be marriage according to ordinary language and according to history, but they can't be, they can't be unions by, by the way God created the world to work because they're just not beautiful enough. What makes, what makes maleness and femaleness beautifully recognize, represent the complexity and unity of God's being? is that it's, it's complex and it's, it's different and same at the same time. Marriage is marriage because it is uniquely beautiful. And anything less than that is just not beautiful enough to be of God. It has another implication for us, this way that we are created. And that is the first words of Adam to Eve were words of of. of of praise. This is bone of my bones and, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Whoa, man, look what God has given to me. And yet what happens after the fall? He becomes ashamed. The, the text ends, that the chapter ends that way. They were naked, they were unashamed. When they rebelled against God, they became ashamed of the bodies that God had given to them. They never had experienced that before. They run into the bushes. They try to cover themselves with fig leaves. It's a pathetic kind of, uh, kind of self-salvation. And God effectively says, who told you to be ashamed? Who told you you were naked? I didn't do that. I didn't create shame in my world. If you're experiencing shame, it's come from another source. 
And then what, how does Adam answer? The second words that human, a human speaks to another human. The first word that one human speaks to another is words of praise. And the second words are words of denigration. It's this woman you gave me. Lots of applications there, but not the least of them being this. Our chief duty as men is to praise women. I don't mean that in a creepy way, crossing sexual boundaries. Of course, I don't mean that. Within your marriage, of course, it is to praise your wife. That's a challenge, isn't it? Not because I know any of your wives and know that that's a challenge. I don't mean that. I mean it's a challenge for our indwelling sin. Because our most natural disposition is to criticize. Everybody, particularly our wives. The most natural disposition for us as men is to criticize women. To think poorly of them. They're the lesser lot. They're irrational. They're so emotional. They're so whatever. If I were talking to women, I would have other things to say to them. But I'm just talking to men today. Here's our problem. We, are, we follow Adam in his fallen condition, and Jesus is recreating us in order to follow Adam in his pre-fallen condition so that our first words, the first thing we're known for in our homes is praising, affirming, encouraging. And it should be that we, that the women in our organizations, not because they need us to lift them up, but the women in our organization should, be, should experience greater fulfillment as image bearers of God because we as sons of God and, and brother human beings bless them as God's gifts to the world with whom we share the image bearing uh, vocation. Well, uh, I'm not going to spend much time on the, the third point. That is, just to point you to verse 8. The Lord God formed a garden in Eden in the east, and there He put the man whom He had formed. Well, if I just read that, we could have shortened this whole lesson, because that's the whole thing right there. God planted a garden, and God formed man. He is the explanation of the earth and all of its systems. He is the explanation of man who unpacks the creation's potential. And he does it all for his glory and for our good. And thus, he presents himself as the one who is superior to all the other gods. Remember, Moses is writing, Martin made this point very clear. Moses is writing against all of the foreign gods surrounding. And all the foreign gods, you know, they had a god for everything. But that god was capricious and, and unpredictable and, and cruel and bloodthirsty. And here, Moses is saying, your God is not like those gods. Your God is gracious. He's good. He wants His goodness and His grace to be reflected in your daily work. He wants your experience to be worshipful. And ultimately, He wants you to recognize that He's preserving this world as the arena through which He is going to glorify Himself by showing mercy to you and redeeming you in Jesus Christ. Get to that point in Genesis chapter 3 when he says, even though you've fallen, even though you've rebelled against me, 
I'm going to cause the seed of the woman to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. I'm going to redeem you. And nothing is going to stand in the way of my doing that. The whole Bible is about redemption in Jesus Christ. That's the whole story. And not only is that the whole story of the Bible, now we know that's the whole story of creation. We start with Genesis 1 and 2, not just to understand the origin of the universe. We start with Genesis 1 and 2 to understand the origin of God's historically carrying out His plan to save us in Jesus Christ. It's great news, isn't it? It's something that should inspire you to do even the hardest of work today. No matter what happens to you, no matter what you go through today, no matter what the circumstances are, as John Calvin would say, you must not allow the devil to allow, must not allow the devil to, to give you a theology from beneath. That is, you look around at what's happening and you say, God must be this. But rather, you need to have a theology from above. No matter what is happening, I know that a good God has created this world. A good God is preserving this world. A good God made me. And a good God made this world and me in order that through Jesus Christ, He might redeem me and cause all things to work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Let's pray together. <clears throat> oh, Lord Jesus, we thank You that You not only created us and created the world, but You explained it to us. Though there was no one there to witness it happening, You, by Your Spirit, reflected it to Moses, he wrote it down for us, and we say, O oh Lord, it is a great comfort to know that we are not alone in the cosmos. It is a great comfort to know that this is our Father's world. It is a great comfort to know that you've made a, a covenant with the, with, the, with, the, with the world, the earth, to preserve and keep it until you have finished your work of redeeming. It is a comfort, it is a, it is a dignity to know that the most menial task we do today, if done for your glory, can be established as eternally significant. And so we pray that we would go forth as your sons and that we would carry out your mandate of, of redeeming this world for your glory and also explaining to those around us why we're doing it. And may our faith be contagious in such a way that someone would say, what in the world do you have? I need that. We pray it all in Jesus' name and for his sake. God's men said together, amen. <laughs>